1: how do we assess the state of our health? How do we surmise if our health is getting better or going the wrong direction? We've had many guests talk about underlying mechanisms such as inflammation, oxidative stress, mitochondrial health, and how do we know if the overall uh, approach is going in the correct direction? Well, here today, Stephen Fox. Will help us with this because he is a genius at figuring out how the body works and how to get answers from it at very low cost. So Stephen is an organic chemist with a background of biochemistry, neurochemistry, nutrition, metabolism. He's also a consultant at nutrition. Formulation of um, supplements. He's written six books and he's author of over 100 issues of Health Letters. He's a public speaker, which is an interesting story itself. Inventor and an expert witness. He's also um, uh, the technical advisor to the Silicon Valley Health Institute. That's where we met, and Stephen is there just about every third Thursday evening, uh, just sharing his brilliance with the audience. Um, he was also the moderator and blogger for the Project Wellbeing. He's the chief chemist of E-Cycle Systems, the executive director of Cognitive Enhancement Research Institute, the co-founder and chief science officer of Nanopolymer Systems Corporations. And he's the most brilliant man I've ever met. So welcome, Steve. Thank you. Okay, so I mean, you—I mean—you have so much brilliance, and you share it every month in your meetups, and you share it on the monthly meetings at Silicon Valley Health Institute, which are online, by the way. Um, so, what can we tell people about how to assess the state of their health?
2: Well, I think that people need to learn to speak body. Um, we're all born, you know, with our primary language, and maybe some of us are lucky enough to develop a second language, and. Um, but we're never really taught to speak body and the body is speaking to us all the time how we feel how we think how we perform um uh, these are all um uh, can be viewed as a language that we need to learn and so that's one of the fun aspects of biohacking, is to uh, look at things that one that we tend to take for granted, and to um, to see if we can find information there about how well our body is doing. Um, as example, something as simple as measuring your body temperature can give you a lot of information about how well your metabolism is doing. Is it robust and you have a near-normal body temperature? Or is your metabolism slow and you have a cold body temperature with cold hands and feet and, um, and and um, let's say, a low pulse rate and um, low blood pressure maybe before it becomes high blood pressure?
1: So are you saying body temperature is an assessment of our metabolism?
2: Um, uh, it's a good one. It's not foolproof. I mean, obviously, if you have a fever and your body temperature is normal, that's a sign that your body temperature is too low and the fever is just bringing it up to normal. But because the fever is pathological, or at least, you know, an immune system positive reaction to some infection of some sort, um, that would be, you know, an example where a seemingly normal body temperature would be misleading. So it's not by any means foolproof, but um, it's an extremely inexpensive and um, non-invasive technology.
1: And does this assess, I mean, so let me see if I understand, the temperature kind of in general, except for some exceptions, correlates with the rate of the metabolism?
2: Yes. Yes yeah and it, it, there are other things that influence it and and certainly um, things like um, digestion will raise your body temperature and stress and and um, fear, anxiety will raise your body temperature. But when you wake up in the morning, you're not digesting, you're not exercising. In a state of as much relaxation as you can be. And so an early morning body temperature um, eliminates most of those confounding variables that would get in the way of assessing how your body temperature and your metabolism relate to each other.
1: So, when do you recommend we take our body temperatures?
2: As soon as you wake up, before you go to the bathroom, before you stretch, before you kiss your spouse, before you. Um, Drink any water, um, you know, just have the thermometer, um, if it's a mercury thermometer, shake it down the night before. Have the thermometer sitting right on your nightstand, and then have a little message taped on your ceiling or on your wall or whatever. So as soon as you wake up and open your eyes, you see this thing go, oh, it's time to take my body temperature.
1: So you're saying do it first thing in the morning, not before you do each of those wonderful things you just described.
2: Right, but if you want to learn how your body temperature is related to things, you can see, okay, I'm taking it in the morning, and now I have a good baseline. My body temperature is 97.5 when I wake up, and so now I'm going to take some mitochondrial nutrients and see is my body temperature um, affected by that. I'm going to look at implementing an exercise program. Is my body temperature affected by that? So you can use your body temperature as a way of identifying, for example, that you have a low metabolism and for identifying what raises your metabolism towards normal.
1: So what would a te- would 98.6 Fahrenheit would that be the temperature we should aspire to? Uh,
2: not when you wake up in the morning, but that's a good operating temperature during the day when you're engaged in activity and are likely to be, um, let's say, injured, for example, by scraping into something or running across somebody with the flu who coughs in your face or something like that, Uh, 98.0 to 98.6 is a good general operating temperature range. Um, 98.0 is pretty common in our society today because we are a society of people with low metabolism in general.
1: So what do we want the temperature to be when we wake up?
2: About a half a degree below that.
1: So that will be 98.3 would be a good range?
2: Well, I'd say, you know, the high 97s um, okay. to maybe, you know, 97.5 to 98.0 would be a good general realm to be in to indicate that body temperature, uh, that metabolism, if anything, is a relatively minor um, uh, problem. And if you're, you know, a full degree below normal or two degrees below normal or especially three degrees below normal, you have a really, you know, getting more and more serious um, problem that... um, isn't likely to be diagnosed by the medical system because when you get your body temperature measured by a doctor or a nurse it's in the middle of the day when you've been you know driving to your appointment and dealing with traffic and you know shuttling your kids to you know soccer practice or whatever it is in your life that is part of your business you've been doing all that kind of stuff so you're not in a relaxed you know, non-stress state, and body temperature doesn't really mean that much in that kind of an environment.
1: Uh, Okay, so we're using the temperature as a gauge for the rate of our metabolism. Why does the rate of our metabolism matter?
2: Well, it determines how much physical energy you have, so your strength and your stamina are dependent upon it. It determines the status of your redox um, um, system, your antioxidant defense system. And that would relate to your immunity. It would relate to your ability to handle uh, chemical exposures. Um, it would relate to the, the the likelihood of a successful vaccination, for example. Um, it it's so, it, and also let's say thinking and memory and performance, mental performance, um, not just the the physical side of performance, but the mental side of performance, clarity, focus. Um, as aspects of one's well-being.
1: Wow, that sounds like just about everything, uh, the yeah. me- metabolism effects. Um, is this the same as a mitochondrial problem, or is that just one of the problems that's a part of it?
2: Well, I, I think that that's just one. So, you know, mitochondria are certainly the power plants of the cell, but um, it's, not, it's not necessarily a mitochondrial problem if you have, for example, um, lead. In your system, and the average American today has about a hundred times more lead in their bodies than their ancestors from ten generations ago, and that's because we burned leaded gas you know as a folly, a social folly, for so many decades. and all of that leaded gas released lead into the atmosphere, which deposited in our soils, we breathed it in into our bodies, It got into our bones, and each generation. Mothers pass it to their to their um, their through their pregnancies to their children, and it's just a big problem because everybody's affected, and we we no longer really pay attention to it. So that toxic effect of lead is now, you know, many times higher in its effect on us, and so we have all kinds of other complaints that are secondary to that, but we don't associate them with the lead. We just think that's the way it is.
1: Well, many other guests have talked about toxins, particularly Dr. Campbell, and lead and causing many different metabolic problems. So if we've got a heavy toxin load, that will pull down our metabolism. That's that right. What you're, okay. So what are some of the manifestations of low metabolism? It sounds like just about anything.
2: It can be anything, but, you know, you can have um, low metabolic rate, you can have uh, brain fog attacks, you can have compromised immunity, so I would put all autoimmune diseases and um, chronic fatigue uh, conditions in the category of things that would be um, exacerbated by low metabolic rate. Um, many degenerative diseases would also fall into that category, not only things like you know heart disease, but neurodegenerative conditions like uh, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease
1: Wow uh, what about if your metabolism is going too quickly what would that mean?
2: Uh, well it's it's the opposite kind of effect you have um, you're in a sense burning your candle at both ends which um, works very nicely on the on the terms of what you get done at any given point in time um, assuming that you know you can actually your metabolism isn't so high that you can't sleep for example so we have healing mechanisms and 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 sleep that are restorative that are times when our body calms down and our metabolism drops. So our daytime metabolism is different than our nighttime metabolism. Our action-oriented metabolism is different from our healing metabolism. And with a high metabolism, a too high metabolism, you get a sacrifice of the healing side of things and the sleep side of things. And that can certainly be, you know, a problem. But I think the biggest issue is that when you burn your candle at both ends, you don't live as long a life.
1: Okay, so what are some of so the causes of hypometabolism? They sound like it could just be anything, like uh, hormonal issues, vitamins, uh, uh, insulin resistance, nutritional deficiencies, toxicities. Sound like just about anything could cause a low metabolism.
2: That's true. Um, You could have impaired lung function emphysema. You know, you live in the LA basin and it's been decades and decades and now your lung function is compromised. Well, you need oxygen in order to burn fuel. Um, you could have cardiovascular, um, issues with blood flow. If there's a restriction in blood flow, the downstream tissues don't get enough blood and that can lower the metabolism of those tissues. Um, so, um, you can have environmental exposures um, uh, formaldehyde from building materials in, in your in your home or your work you can have you know pesticide exposures uh, hormone issues even natural ones like um, uh, you know declining testosterone in men and rising estrogen in men or menopause in women where the transition from a high progesterone, high cycle to um, low progesterone and no cycling um, can be very uncomfortable and traumatic. And that can manifest through your metabolism.
1: So let me, uh, we're coming close to a break, so let me see, summarize this. So we can, the temperature can measure how our metabolism is doing, and our metabolism can become low from just about any problem in the world, and it can result just about any other medical problem, and I guess the way to address low metabolism is to find the underlying cause and address it. Good summary. Okay, well, we're at a break now, so um, no, we're not at a break. Pardon me, so, okay, so why do we have such a pandemic of uh, low metabolism at this point and all these chronic diseases
2: well we've we've lost our biological roots. we don't live in a natural environment anymore. We have exposures to things that we didn't have before. Much of this kind of exposure uh, and consequence is um, multi-generational. In other words, um, it, it you know if if you do something wrong, um, it affects your children and your grandchildren, and so we are at the effect of bad decisions that were made, you know, 20 and 40 and 60 years ago. Um, so there's a there's there is that kind of cumulative effect on the process as well. But I think the main issue is that we're not we're not encouraged to pay attention to our bodies. Uh, when we're young, we feel energetic and and we conclude that we're immortal and we can eat junk food with no apparent consequence. But, you know, later in life, it catches up with us. And so we, we're not taught, we, we're taught how to speak English and we're taught how to speak mathematics and we're taught how to speak um, color. Uh, we're coming to
1: a break now, so I'm sorry to interrupt. Thanks. So we'll get back to more of this in just a second.
0: Your life, your health, your network. You're
3: listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Do you feel that you aren't at your best when it comes to your personal health? Even if your doctor gives you a clean bill of health,
0: You are listening to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. We'd love to hear from you about today's show. Send your email to Susan at OccupyHealth.com. That's Susan at OccupyHealth.com. Now, back to this week's program.
1: Welcome back. We're speaking with Stephen Fox, who was telling us all the things in our environment and our lifestyle choices and our food choices that are leading us as a society to poor health. And our health is getting worse. So in order that we can each take responsibility and try to improve our own individual health, he's telling us how to biohack and find out how we're doing. Um, And excuse the tree trimmers that are outside my yard making lots of noise. Okay, Steve, so um, can you give us some more examples on how we can assess the state of our health?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, when I was doing biohacking, not only did the term biohacking not exist yet, but um, there was a um, a lot of time and trouble that went into it, like urine pH testing, where every time you pee for a day or three days in a row, you'd measure urine pH by tearing off a piece of pH paper, touching it to the stream of urine, matching it to a color chart, and writing it down. Um, that's not a simple thing and it's disruptive to people's lives but there are many things that people can pay attention to that are part of your life that is relatively easy. We have a lot of electronics that we can wear now that measure things like how many steps you take during the day or your pulse rate, um, you know, timing. If you do exercise, for example, you can study how many reps you can do at particular weights. You can study how long it takes you to ride your bike through a particular route or run a particular route or walk a particular route. You can look at your heart rate and your heart rate recovery. You can look at your uh, heart rate variability there are a huge number of ways that you can investigate things that are going on in your life that are dependent upon what you already do and so that's what i usually advise clients is you know what is it that you're currently doing that you can measure and if you want to add to that what is it that you can do that would be easy for you that would be enjoyable for you that would be fun for you to do
1: so um, tell me about these urine tests. Uh, what does that tell us?
2: Well, uh, urine is a, um, a, 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 an indicator of how much pH stress there is going on in your blood. So your blood has acid stresses that happen to it and alkaline stresses that happen to it as a result of what's going on with your metabolism and your healing and your inflammation and all this kind of stuff. And your kidneys are designed to defend your blood pH. Your blood pH has to be very narrowly constrained in order to carry oxygen efficiently. And so any extra acid, it it all goes out through your kidneys into your urine, and any extra alkali, it also goes out into your urine. So a normal, healthy person will experience three pH unit swings, two to three pH unit swings on a daily basis, which is um, a factor of 100 to 1,000 in terms of counting all those protons or hydroxide um, molecules that would be in the urine. Um, this is not a trivial issue, and it's it's an indicator of one's circadian rhythm. So the degree to which you're synchronized into your day-night cycle, or you're out of phase with it, shows up in your urine.
1: So what does it mean if you're too acidic in the morning, meaning your uh, the number you, you read is too low, or um, it's too high?
2: It. it it usually means that you would be what would be called a morning lark kind of metabolism or personality. You wake up at dawn spontaneously. You might even wake up before the sun comes up and you're the kind of person who falls asleep in front of the television in the evening where you know, your tendency is to have a you know, 23 or 23 and a half hour biological clock where you're drifting um, you know, to earlier and earlier times. Um, the more common kind of stress that people have is they wake up to alkaline and they go to sleep while they're, well, they're acid instead of when they're alkaline. And they wake up alkaline and they have a hard time getting going during the day and they really need their bacon or they really need their coffee in the morning to cope with the jump start in the early morning hours. And those people are night owls. They tend to have a longer than 24-hour Biological clock, and I used to be that kind of uh, metabolic type um, as a child and as a as an adult um, for decades. I always had problems getting to sleep um, on a timely basis, and waking up in the morning was, um, you know, difficult. So. Um, you know, I, but now that I've biohacked my circadian rhythm, um, I, can, I can be either a night owl or a morning person, depending upon what's appropriate at any given time, and I can even shorten my circadian rhythm in a given day. So if I start to drift into being a night owl again, I can do a specific set of, of uh, you know, lifestyle factors, and the next morning I wake up at dawn spontaneously without an alarm clock.
1: So the morning urine pH, which you measure by just getting some uh, pH paper and having it ready when the first urine arrives, uh, that tells us uh, if we've got a propensity to be uh, night owls or morning larks?
2: Yes, and especially when you compare it to your second urination of the day. The problem with urine in the morning is it's an accumulation of a large amount of time and large amount of of urine. And most of us wake up with a full bladder and unless we wake up in the middle of the night and, and, and pee, but that, so when you do your first urine pH, it's a measurement of up to six hours to eight hours of urine. And then when you do your second urination, you're now that's fresh urine. And so you get to see what the trend was before that first urination. So when you extrapolate back into the night, you can infer what, You know the the pH at the early part of your sleep versus the pH at the later part of your sleep, based on you know what your pH readings were in the night before you went to sleep and what they are in the in the morning during the entire morning, you get to fill in the gaps to make it clearer: um, Are you you know late in your rhythm or are you premature in your rhythm?
1: So you take maybe four or five uh, pH tests throughout the day, maybe do it over five days to see if there's a pattern. And I guess the dip will show when you're uh, acidic and when it goes to a peak, it will show when you're a base, or alkaline. And so I guess when you're acidic, that means you're all ready to go and your immunity system's ready to rev and you've got a lot of energy and you're ready to get up.
2: Yeah, with with certain you know uh, perturbations that you can characterize. So a good example of that would be exercise. So exercise drives up your metabolic rate and creates a whole bunch of acidic um, uh, stress to your bloodstream. And then when you are done with your exercise, there's an alkaline rebound that happens. So you you know an exercise event will cause a ripple in your urine pH and you get to see how does that work and if you time it right so that you're not you know doing something inappropriate at that time when you're alkaline if you can take a nap during that time you'll actually recover better from your exercise than you would than if you were to for example um, get in your car and go pick up your kids or to deal with an important um, uh, thing like an IRS audit at a time when you're supposed to be alkaline and you use your adrenal gland to pump a lot of uh, cortisol into your system and and uh, and and create an unnatural acidification because of your lifestyle.
1: So I'm just seeing how our listener can use this. So when uh, you've got times when you are the alkaline, that's a good time to, to take a rest. And when you're acidic, it kind of indicates that your immune system and your energy is ready to go? That's right yeah okay so i'm just seeing how we can use this so um and you're saying also that so that we can modify these cycles so if we want the energy in the morning we can try to be acidic at that time or if we have a night shift we can change it so you know do take do various things so that we can be more acidic at night and have more energy is that correct
2: that's right so that's why people eat certain kinds of breakfasts so There are some people who can eat fruit for breakfast, and those people are people who already have their daytime acidity fully in in motion, and the alkaline effect of the fruit doesn't derail them. But you take somebody who's a night owl and is waking up um, poorly, um, very, very slowly, you give them fruit for breakfast, and it'll derail them for the entire day. So this goes to the question of what's the right diet for you? What's the right lifestyle for you? Um, is drinking coffee in the morning um, you know, okay for you? It's not just an issue of whether or not you tolerate caffeine. It's also an issue of whether or not you need a metabolic jumpstart from the effect of caffeine on your mitochondria.
1: Okay, so let me see if I understand. So, okay, you want the acidic periods to be when you need the energy and ready to go. And so if you eat something acidic, that will help you with that. But if you're already very acidic, then you don't want any more acidic. So you, you can eat the alkaline foods and not lose any of your energy.
2: Yeah, and that's why eating an alkaline diet is really good for people who are energetically robust. So if you're in incredible shape and you have a high metabolism, you can thrive on a mostly alkalinizing diet. Uh, But somebody with fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, who does excessive alkaline diet can crash and burn.
1: So what foods are acidic and which foods are alkaline?
2: Well, uh, fat-containing foods are acidic, and those would be meat, Um, internal organs. It would be nuts and grains. Um, Those would be in that general category. There are a few fruits that are acidifying like pomegranates and cherries and tomatoes and cranberries. So, uh, that, but there are exceptions to the general rule. You know, 95 to 99% of fruits are alkalinizing, and so are vegetables. Green leafy vegetables, most of the, the plant matter is highly alkalinizing, and sea vegetables would be the most severe in that category, um, along with, let's say, citrus, which would also be highly alkalinizing. Does um, that give you a good enough example?
1: Citrus, like lemon, would be alkaline?
2: That's right. Yeah, so the the acidity to your taste buds is not an indication of what happens um, with acid and alkaline to your deep tissues.
1: I also understand other alkalinizing agents would be uh, baking soda, and acidic would be carbonated water, such as club soda and seltzer water.
2: Yeah, and vinegar. Yeah, so that's a common thing for many kind of fasts, to use vinegar to um, help you know, clean out the system, and so many things that we eat um, will be a mixture of acid and alkaline. So salad dressing, for example, will be oil and vinegar, which are both acidifying, and that balances the alkaline nature of green leafy vegetables. So we have all of these kinds of things that we figured out, even if we've only figured them out subconsciously, where they're part of our practice. And this only becomes a problem if you don't really know what you're doing and you have an acid or alkaline imbalance and you're basically running on autopilot and you might make bad decisions about what you're doing, like eating the wrong thing at the wrong time, out of habit, and um, that might derail you in terms of pushing you into a... Very serious night owl syndrome, or um, have you know where you're you're falling asleep too early in the evening and waking up in the middle of the night, and not being able to sleep in the middle of the night.
1: This sounds like could be relate, a correlating with cortisol because when cortisol is high, which you want it in the morning, you're awake, and you want it low in the evening, you know because it's inversely related to melatonin. So it sounds like a lot of these things are working together.
2: That's true, and cortisol is a natural acidifying agent that handles. The alkaline stress of dark, um, dark adaptation, is a an important survival mechanism. Our metabolism slows down at night, and uh, cortisol is what keeps our metabolism high enough in order to survive. And um, you know, if that mechanism goes wrong, um, this can cause people to experience a abnormal health risk um, as the night progresses. Um, I can't tell you how many people. We, we talk about people passing naturally in their sleep, and that's likely because of that um, dark adaptation stress that we're, we didn't handle it properly.
1: What about co- coffee? Is that alkalizing, acidifying, or both?
2: Well, it's short-term acidifying and long-term alkalizing because it's plant matter. Um, it's a plant extract, and so it's alkalizing. But the short-term effect of the caffeine um, is to acidify. It's a mitochondrial uncoupling agent, and so you get this kind of surge of energy, which is lasts about two hours, which coincides with you know the timing of coffee breaks throughout the day. You work for two hours, you take a coffee break. You work for two hours, you go to lunch. You work for two hours, you take a coffee break. You work for two hours, you go to dinner. Um, so that two-hour cycle is is engineered into the acidifying part of it, but if you don't know what you're doing, that the alkalinizing effect of coffee means that you need more and more coffee to correct for it. So just like exercise causes a rebound, um, coffee causes a rebound as well.
1: Okay. And so if we eat alkaline food and we feel worse, that probably means that we're alkaline or what it mean is a mitochondrial yeah. problem?
2: Alkaline stressed could be mitochondrial, could be, you know... Um, thyroid issues it could be heavy metal poisoning uh you know pesticide issues there's all kinds of things Uh, even even circadian disruptions where you're okay um, unfortunately during the day
1: we're coming to a break so hold that thought because it's a very interesting one and we'll be right back your life your health your network
3: If you're busy, stressed, and can't ever seem to find the time to add in those new healthy habits, you need to check out Lisa Lutan's busy, stressed, and food-obsessed show. This program will help you discover easy ways to improve your health and happiness. Plus, you will pick up all sorts of tips on better eating, fitness, relationships, how to manage stress, and a lot more. You'll feel yourself becoming healthier just by tuning in. Listen live every Thursday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health and Wellness. Steps to a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: You are listening to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. We'd love to hear from you about today's show. Send your email to Susan at OccupyHealth.com. That's Susan at OccupyHealth.com. Now, back to this week's program.
1: Well, just before the break, it was very interesting. We were discussing if we eat something alkaline like a lot of seaweed and we feel worse with no energy, that's an indication that we've probably got a low metabolism and something's just not working right. And Steve was saying it could be things as just mitochondrial issues and all sorts of issues. So that is a signal to us that uh, we've got slow metabolism.
2: I think that's a really good conclusion to make. And especially if you see... The opposite effect that you have an attraction to acidic, an attraction to vinegar, um, an attraction to oil-containing foods, um, that you feel better on the on, with with acidic nutrition, that that could be a sign that your acid alkaline, um, you know, um, metabolic side of things are out of balance with respect to each other.
1: So we've got a couple of measures here. If we eat something alkaline and we have a bad reaction, it could tell us something about how our metabolism is going. If, we're, you know, if it's too low, our pH is going to tell us, you know, taking of our urine is going to tell us certain things. And our temperature tells us if the metabolism is low. And over time, we can track these. We can, it sounds like we can experiment. Let's try a little bit of this. Let's try this and that. And we can measure how it changes and be our own doctor.
2: Well, yes. And more importantly, that we're using our body as a um, as a sense um, so that if we have an adverse effect that's going on, we actually notice it instead of trying to power through it with adrenal stress or to power through it by eating chocolate or power through it by, you know, exercise, whatever it is that we use as a compensation, that we actually take the time to listen. You know, heart rate variability has to do with the way in which our autonomic nervous system functions, and that's something that you can get um, access to just by measuring your heart beat and how it beats and how the the, the timing between beats changes either quickly or slowly and gradually. Um, we also have uh, mental performance issues that are now available online. You know, back when we were um, younger, there. You know, back when I was young. Um, it was very hard to measure um, the mental function other than through things like reaction time tests and stuff. But nowadays, we have um, things like quantified mind and, and um, uh, lumosity that we can log on and play games on a computer that will give us a daily score of how well we're doing mentally. And the mind, the brain, the mind, the Thinking and memory and 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 functionality are very um, early indicators of physiological problems.
1: Okay. Uh, what about how long we can hold our breath? Obviously, um, if, if, our, if we've got a lot of CO2, uh, we can hold our breath longer. And if our CO2 is, I mean, anyway, will you explain it? I might be. Getting it backwards.
2: It's the other way around. Yeah, I thought. Yeah, so, so our, we breathe based on how much CO2 we have in our system, and if our CO2 goes high, we get this incredible compulsion to breathe, and if our CO2 is low, we tend to learn that if we breathe too rapidly, we get into trouble. We can get a panic attack, or my issue with stage fright, um, and uh, so how long you can hold your breath gives you information about how high your CO2 is at the time you start to hold your breath. So at some point during the day, you can just, you know, take a full deep breath and hold it and and time it. How long can you hold it? And if it's less than 30 seconds, you've got a lot of CO2 in your system. In other words, the CO2 builds up very easily because it's already high. Um, And then if your CO2 is low, you can hold your breath often for more than a minute. And, you know, that's not those numbers are just kind of general and are based on, you know, whether or not you're somebody who's trained in breathing, like, you know, you practice yoga or you're a swimming instructor and you regularly swim underwater and hold your breath underwater and you've trained yourself in a diving reflex. Um, But there's still a variation. So if you're somebody who's well-trained as a swimmer, you might hold your breath for only one minute if you um, have low CO2 and can hold it for two minutes if you have, uh, or excuse me, uh, high CO2, and and you can hold it for two minutes if you have low CO2.
1: What does that tell us? By measuring
2: yourself with respect to your own breath-holding time, you can see if your CO2 goes up or down based on whether you take lipoic acid or you drink carbonated water or you exercise.
1: What does the CO2 tell us? Why should we be concerned if we've got low CO2 or high CO2, if we can hold our breath a long time or not?
2: Well, CO2 is the um, the waste product of your metabolism. So anytime you're burning fuel and generating energy, CO2 is the aerobic waste product from that. And if you're not aerobic, it would be lactic acid, which you notice in the form of muscle pain and aches and a burning sensation when you exercise. So either way, getting information about lactic acid or getting information about CO2 gives you information about your metabolism.
1: Well, how does it connect? I mean, do we want low CO2 because that kind of would imply we have more oxygen going on?
2: No. Um, it, I mean, O2 is consumed and CO2 is generated, but because um, O2 is flowing into your body in a, in a steady state arrangement and CO2 is flowing out of your body in a steady state arrangement, it's not just a simple matter of having high or low CO2. You know, whenever you have blood drawn and you do a CBC test and you get back all these results, there's going to be a CO2 measurement on it. But it doesn't really mean much if you don't have it in a context. So CO2 levels only, you know, they're not really medically important unless they're just wildly deviant. And you can, you can induce that By changing your breathing style. So if you have a low metabolism and you learn subconsciously to breathe parasympathetically, you know, slow, deep breathing and um, hold your breath periodically, um, you've compensated for a low metabolism condition. And that's useful if you know that you're doing it, but it's not useful if you don't know that you're doing it because... When you stop compensating, you're going to get into trouble. So if you have, you know, low metabolic rate um, and you have a psychological trigger towards a phobia or fear of public speaking, like I did, um, then all of a sudden you start to breathe more rapidly. You blow off that low CO2, and then the blood flow to your brain shuts down.
1: So let me see if I understand. So if you have um, a low metabolic rate, um, you're it's a very good thing to take deep diaphragmatic breaths.
2: Yeah, sympathetic breathing is relaxed. It's, it, you use your diaphragm, and um, you, you breathe fairly slowly, um, and it's designed to conserve CO2. So when you're relaxed and you're calm and you're sleeping, you're low, you have low production of CO2, and you naturally conserve it. What happens when you get frightened? You start to breathe rapidly. You do chest breathing, rapid breathing, shallow breathing. When you exercise, you breathe rapidly and shallowly. This is designed to blow off the CO two, and and being uh, triggering that behavior before you actually start running helps you get rid of CO two, so that as you're trying to outrun the bear and climb the tree, you actually blow off enough CO two that you can get to the tree and climb the tree before the bear eats you.
1: So Very adaptive. Pinterest. So parasympathetic breathing, as I understand, is the deep, calm breathing. And then sympathetic breathing is when you're flight or fright and you're breathing shallowly and you just need to act quickly.
2: Yeah, that's right. But when you're driving down the road and you see all these things flowing past you, that induces a state of sympathetic breathing, even though you might feel relaxed on some level if it's the traffic isn't really you know, plugging you in. So you become sympathetic automatically because normally when things are flowing at you visually, you're running. So, so there's a well, deep
1: breathing help raise our metabol- metabolism rate.
2: It can, yes. Um, so there's a, there's all kinds of religious practices that involve um, controlled breathing as a route to raise one CO two to help with. Um, achieving a state of uh, enlightenment, um, so that can also happen through singing. A lot of people uh, sing for for as a as a technique for their spiritual um, experience. Uh, when you sing, you are you have a, a pressure gradient between your lungs and the outside, because you're singing through your vocal cords, and that restrains the flow of air, and that drives the CO2 back into your system. So when you sing, you're conserving CO2.
1: So generally it's a good thing if we can hold our breath for a longer period of time and take deep breathing, it will help us in whatever state we're in? No.
2: I mean, I think being able to hold your breath for a long period of time, if you're not... Um, condition specifically to do that is a sign that your metabolism is low and that you have a metabolic problem. So, you know, holding your breath for a long time because of training is a, is a sign that you've got a problem and that you're, that you're fit. But holding your breath for a long time without that training is a sign that you have low metabolism.
1: If you can only hold your breath for 30 seconds, what's that indicate?
2: It means you have a higher metabolism
1: interesting so these are various measures we can take to see how our body is doing So okay we've learned about body temperature, pH, uh, how long we can hold our breath so do you have any other um, biohacking that you oh yeah. Well, I've like uh, got you no hours. end of
2: this. I could talk for hours, but here's a good one. Um, the issue of aerobic versus anaerobic metabolism and the use of glucose as a fuel versus the use of fat as a fuel. So, for example, if your strength and stamina go up when you restrict carbs and go into ketosis, it can be an indicator that you have insulin resistance.
1: Wow. You also have another very interesting one about whether you're hypercoagulated with your nanokinase, which is a quick test to see, you know, eliminate one possible cause of brain fog.
2: That's right. So um, how thick your blood is um, influences how it flows through your blood vessels and how well it irrigates your brain. Um, your brain uses 20% of your body's energy, even though it's only 3% or so of your body's tissue. So your brain is burning hot like your heart would be when you're exercising. Um, and if you, if you take something like natokinase or lumbrokinase um, and it reduces your blood, uh, it reduces your blood viscosity so that your blood flows better through your brain, you can experience that as an increase in focus, attention, mental performance, uh, memory, uh, decision-making abilities, um, and that's an indicator that your blood was too thick when you started. Um, If your blood is already thin when you take the natokinase, um, it doesn't affect it, and therefore you don't notice a benefit. So this is one way to get a handle on one particular system of your body, and that is your blood viscosity.
1: So what would the uh, listener do?
2: Well, um, the typical thing that I suggest to people who have some kind of cognitive impairment is to start you know, mentally testing yourself with some online service or at-home game like You know, a card game with memory uh, involved and flipping over cards and matching pairs and stuff like that, where you have an idea of how well your brain is doing. Um, And then you take natokinase uh, for a week and you start with one a day and then the next day you do two a day and the next day you do three and the next day four and just keep going for a week, and if you see your memory scores improving, if you see your, your gaming scores improving, if you think that you, you're, you don't forget words as frequently and you start to have a better uh, phrasing and you don't have senior moments, they go away, um, that's a sign that you had a coagulopathy. Your blood was just too thick, mainly because of inflammatory tendencies in your system.
1: So, I mean, we've mentioned many interesting things we are coming to a close. Temperature can give us a rough measure of a metabolic rate. We can do pH to see if we're alkaline or acidic and what foods might help us. So we can see how we react to foods. Um, holding our breath is a measure that helps us. And uh, to see if we're coagulated because we want our blood flowing smoothly. You also mentioned quick mind and heart rate variability in holding your breath. In the last couple of minutes here, how would people get a hold of you, Steve?
2: Well, um, I'm all over the Internet. If you type my name into a search engine, um, you're going to get a, a thousand hits or more. Um, uh, my uh, uh, my general hub page is at projectwellbeing.com. Uh, I do a lot of blogging on Quora, so if you sign into Quora, there's just all this question and answering going on. It's really cool. Um, the seri.com website, C-E-R-I.com, is where all the older um, smart drug um, literature is, and now all of those back issues are online. So it's just a wealth of information, even dealing with you know, how to treat Down syndrome, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, or just ordinary, you know, everyday brain fog kinds of stuff. Um, it's a, there's a wealth of information there.
1: Are you uh, accessible if people want to contact you with their questions or wanting a consultation?
2: Uh, yes. If uh, I typically give people ten to twenty minutes to talk to find out if there's a fit, so if people want to, uh, you know, consult with me, I just want to mention that. And like a lot of your guests who are medical practitioners, I'm not. I'm a scientist. I don't have a medical degree at all. And I consider that kind of an ethical requirement that I not have a medical Anyway,
1: degree, we but, are coming to a close, I, and we love you all the more for uh, your brilliance in looking at all these other issues. So in closing, I would like to say uh, do your own research, follow up online, and learn what you can. Consult with Steve if you wish, and so you can go out and help yourselves and help others. Have a good day.